0: Well, we're going to begin as we do every Sunday morning by praying for the saints. Um, doesn't it, doesn't Peter say something about the saints or the uh, the brethren scattered? James. No, I think Peter says, yeah, the scattered brethren. Anyhow, the Lord has His scattered brethren in all all nations and all around the United States and around the world, and some of them, some of them listen, and so we. I want to include them in our prayers and in our hearts as we think about people that are lacking fellowship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this uh, glorious resurrection day in which we can come and rejoice that You've vindicated the Gospel claims by resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and He appeared before many witnesses. And we know that our belief is not based on cleverly devised fables, but on cold, sober truth of what you did in history to fulfill the great promises that you gave in the Old Covenant. And Lord, we do pray for those who are lacking church fellowship right now because perhaps their church was corrupted and uh, taken away from them, or perhaps they're in a small area where no one's really preaching the gospel. And we pray that your word would go out and touch their hearts as well, and that they would find sanctification and growth and encouragement as the scriptures are taught and we pray that also for us that we'd be open and good listeners as your word is proclaimed in Jesus name. amen. amen okay turn it down just a little here now we were discussing second Corinthians 3 six and uh, there's there's a lot to that passage and It has a long history um, of misinterpretation. I read a little bit about from Calvin two weeks ago on this, and I have another quote about the fact that this passage has been misapplied and misused for literally many, many centuries going back to the origin. And the idea is, really if you just stand back and think about it, it's an absurd idea. Because if you really think when it says the letter kills, what it means is reading the Bible for what it says, then the Bible's warning against its own study. And that's just certainly not what Paul is teaching and would not be even sensible. Why would the Bible warn against itself? Now, let me quote Calvin on the misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. Let me read the passage. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And here's what, uh, Calvin says, for the letter killeth. This passage was mistakenly perverted, first by Origen, and afterwards by others, to a spurious signification. (laughs) From this arose a very pernicious error, that of imagining that the perusal of scripture would not only would not merely be merely useless but even injurious unless it were drawn out into allegories this error was the source of many evils for there was not merely a liberty allowed of adulterating the genuine meaning of scripture but the more of audacity anyone had in this matter of acting so much the more eminent an interpreter of scripture he was accounted now that's really that's old english but it's funny it just means the
1: worse. You, the more you allegorize,
0: the better you work. Yeah, exactly. The, if you, the, the wilder your imagination, and the more spurious meanings you could find in the scripture, then you are like the great uh, interpreter. Okay, so let me read that again. And uh, this, that's that's exactly what Calvin's saying. It's just kind of old English here. It was translated from. Yeah, it says here, "This here is is the source of many evils, for there was not merely a liberty allowed of adulterating the genuine meaning." Okay. But the more audacity anyone had in this manner of acting, that is, adulterating and allegorizing, so much more eminent an interpreter of Scripture he was accounted. (laughs) Thus many of the ancients recklessly played with the sacred word of God as if it had been a ball to be tossed to and fro. In consequence of this, too, heretics had it more in their power to trouble the church. For as it had become general practice to make any passage whatever, mean what anything that one might choose, there was no frenzy so absurd or monstrous as not to admit of being brought forward under some pretext of allegory. (laughs) Even good men themselves were carried headlong so as to contrive many mistaken opinions led astray through a fondness for allegory. So there is Calvin discussing church history of allegorizing the scripture all based on a misinterpretation of one verse. This one. Yes.
1: In some sense, you could look at this as people looking towards. I mean, Calvin's talking about pro, uh, things in the past, but as we look towards prophecy and future prophetic fulfillment of what we know is coming in Revelation that's talking about the future, it'd be much better to err on the side of literalisty than to err on the side of allegory based on that.
0: I know. And most Literal Protestants. Israel, literals, yeah, we still, if we use the term Protestant, most Protestants. Um, would not endorse the allegorical method, but the, the amazing thing is, except for when it comes to eschatology. Okay, so we take the Bible literally everywhere except for passages that are prophetic to speak about the future, and then we go over into allegory. Well, we don't, but some do, and I think it's uh, that's just as pernicious and it's just as wrong. Now, the meaning of a scripture is determined by the author, and the author conveys. His meaning by words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we use sound principles of hermeneutics or interpretation to de- so we could understand the author's meaning. The author's meaning is God's meaning because God inspired them. And so the words are true words that were given by God. Now, we, for, for us to uh, understand Paul's intent here, because this passage certainly means something, so, what, how exactly is he contrasting the letter and the Spirit, and the letter that kills and the Spirit that gives life? Well, we let's just read this whole section and see how he develops his thought. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how... Shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory, or even more with glory? If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For if indeed that had glory, in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So there's a series of contrasts I've identified five of them in this extended lesser to greater argument. You know, do you remember what a lesser to greater argument is? It's I've talked about this many times. It's it's a it's used in the Hebrew thinking. It's a it's a Jewish way of argument argument. But I think all peoples have some version of it. We do in English or in America. If if okay, let me give you an example. Jesus said. And not a sparrow falls from the sky without your father knowing it. How much more does he care for you, O ye of little faith? Okay. Now that's a lesser to the greater. In other words, if God knows about and cares about a sparrow, how much more does he care about a human being created in His image? All right. So, and that's a valid form of argumentation. If the lesser thing is true, the greater certainly must be. All right. So the lesser, what was the lesser on this? So there's five of these contrasts. Let me give you the five and then let's identify what the lesser is. The first contrast is between letter and spirit in verse six letter and spirit. The next contrast is between death and spirit. The third contrast is between stones and hearts. Now this one's implied. It's there, but it's an implied contrast between stones. Now there and we'll look at some Old Testament passage, but the old was written on stones, the new is written on hearts. The fourth contrast is between fading glory and permanent glory. Okay, where well, the first is spirit letter and spirit, the second is death and spirit, the third is stones and hearts, the fourth is fading glory and permanent glory, and the fifth is a contrast between condemnation and righteousness. So, the lesser the old covenant was talked about, especially the old covenant, as people just heard it externally, it was letter, death, stones, fading glory, and condemnation. The new covenant, which is paul 's emphasis here, is spirit it 's life it 's written on hearts it 's a permanent glory, and it imparts rather than condemnation righteousness so I think taking the big picture, we can see what his argument is all about. But at no time is Paul saying that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. And I I can't remember exactly how how much of this we covered two weeks ago because we kind of took a break and had another topic. But uh, I don't mind if we're a little redundant because this is so badly needed. So many people, spiritual lives and churches have been destroyed by this sort of thing. And I I saw it in, in... uh, myself in uh, what Calvin was saying back in the 70s when I was in a charismatic renewal, it was true. The most popular preachers were the ones that were the best at allegorizing. I mean, people found meanings out of Scripture that were just really amazing. I remember, uh, let me just give you a concrete example. I went to the conference on the Holy Spirit in the 70s and the, and the speaker was Bob Mumford. He was, he was probably a champion at allegorizing. Okay? He was one of the best. He was the funniest and the cleverest and, but it set a bad precedent. So let me tell you an allegory that I heard that he used that was very clever and I loved it at the time and now I see it as an assault against the scripture itself. He was preaching on Jesus getting in Peter's boat and, and preaching and then the catch of fish that they had. And he took that whole thing to be an allegory for churches. And his sermon was that Jesus gets, comes into town and goes to a certain church in the Spirit. Okay, And when Jesus goes to the certain church, they have a big catch of fish. And the fish are allegories for people. Well, in that case, you can say that because the fish did stand for people ultimately because Jesus said you'll be fishers of men. But the idea of different churches is not found anywhere in that text but only in Bob Mumford's sermon. So Jesus gets into a boat. The boat stands for a church. The disciples are in another boat, and they had the choice of either being jealous about the catch of fish going on in the, in the, in the boat Jesus was in, or going over and helping. Okay. And so the point of his sermon was that somewhere in, in the Twin Cities, Jesus comes to one church, but not the rest of them. And the church Jesus comes to has a catch of fish, people... And the other churches are supposed to go over and help them. That was his sermon. Well, it's, it's kind of benign, but that's not what the Bible said. That's an allegory. That, that's, that's what allegory looks like. That is not the point. That is not at all. The point was to go out and be fishers of men. Okay, So to go out and preach the gospel, yes.
1: Well, and part of what happens in the allegorizing isn't just that I can find new meanings to scriptures that support what I want to do but you can find other meanings for scriptures that tell you you have to be held accountable. I remember in the same thing, paying taxes. Well, we're not, we are not—we don't have to pay taxes because we're part of the kingdom of God, and therefore we support the kingdom of God. We don't have support. They, they find ways around what the clear meaning is, so they're not held accountable at the same time as finding meanings that they want to go forward with.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to allegorizing, The only thing that reigns it in as far as having any kind of boundaries of where the allegories go is the integrity of the preacher. Now, somebody that somewhere had a decent education is not going to go off and create you know, just a horrendous heresy with the allegory. But by using the method, you open the door. That's what Calvin said. You open the door. The barn door is open. The cows are going to get out because you can go anywhere you want. And who's to say one guy's allegory is right and the other one's wrong? Now, who wanted to say something, Dan? Yeah.
1: Well, then apparently Noah made a mistake because if he would have allegorized, he would never had any problem. He never had to build an ark and get in the ark. He never won one convert. So he just told <laughs> like it was. <laughs> okay. Too bad he
0: didn't know about that pr- yeah. principle. Yeah. Now, let's just point out kind of the absurdity of, the, of using this verse to teach the allegorical interpretation. This, the letters on stones has its basis in God giving the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul is using as an analogy. Okay? This is an analogical argument. So the old was God writing on stones. He, he wrote words on stones. Now, did the words on stones under the old covenant mean what they said, or do they mean something else? Okay. In other words, when they got the stone, the stone tablets, and it says, "Thou shalt have no other gods before me," does it say? Does it mean unless you're a Canaanite and you prefer Moloch? No, it means what it says. It says, "Thou shalt not steal." Does does that have an allegorical meaning? Well, no. It means that we shall not steal. So Paul's point isn't that the what letters written on stone didn't mean what they said but the, the people's hearts were stone. Amen. So you can say it this way, God wrote letters on stones and they were preached to people with hearts of stone. Amen. And so it killed them because of their hard heart and their unbelief, not because the Word of God is, is in itself a bad thing. And Paul talks about, in fact, the best commentary on this, and I, again, forgive me if we covered this two weeks ago, but it, it doesn't hurt to go over these things. I I think that Romans 7 is almost a commentary on this. Let's turn to that. Romans 7. Because Paul really explains it. In fact, he uses himself as an example. Verse 10. Okay, he's talking about the law. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. So God's intent in giving the law was that it was good, it was holy, and it was intended to give life. Alright? And they knew that in Deuteronomy they said, what other nation, what other great nation has this law that we have? We're so privileged that God gave us the law. Okay? But verse ten, he said it was it resulted in death. For sin, verse eleven, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the problem wasn't the commandment, the problem was sin. Okay, So it killed me, he said. So that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did, did that which was good because, become a cause of death in me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin." All right. So the problem, the law is capable of convicting us of being sinners. Amen. And it's good. Yes.
1: I mean, it wasn't the law that, that kills. It's our inability to keep the commandment that kills because of our hearts of stone. And when our hearts are changed, then we have the ability to, to do that. In fact, that's what we want to do. And we end up keeping the law out of our own desire because that's we have a changed set of values.
0: Yeah. With God changes hearts. The law has its function... Even before we're converted, it, it convicts us that we are sinners, that we need the gospel. And because sin is a deluding thing, it, 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 we don't see that we're so bad. It's, we just don't. And I know I didn't, because that was what was my stumbling block before I was converted. From March to July in, in 1971, I was a, an unconverted theist. Because I was convinced by science that God created everything out of nothing. I could no longer be an atheist or agnostic. I knew that God created the whole world out of nothing because of studying uh, chemistry, or organic chemistry, or biochemistry. But I didn't want to submit to God because I thought, why does God care what I do? I mean, so I go to a party. What's, what, is, is that going to hurt God? And that's the way I thought as a uh, unconverted theist, a believer in God who wasn't converted. And so then when the claims of the gospel were put face-to-face with it, I, I became very angry and rebellious and I didn't want to submit to God because I thought that it was a terrible thing that somebody's going to tell me what to do. And then I would say, well, I'm not so bad. I work a summer job to help pay for my own college and I study hard and I get good grades. What makes me so bad? But then the Lord had his say. (laughs) And I found out that I was a horrible, rebellious sinner facing his wrath. And I was converted through the gospel. And Paul has his own story in Romans 7. He said the thing that slew him, the sinner, was the Tenth Commandment. Because he couldn't claim that he kept that one. Remember the rich young ruler says all these things I kept from my youth up? But he didn't mention the Tenth Commandment. Who's going to say, well, I never coveted anything? Okay, so, now, back to our point here, these contrasts. So the contrast is hearts of stone. (laughs) Um, Now, back to our thing. Now, can you see why taking this to mean that the Bible doesn't mean what it says thwarts both the law and the gospel? Okay, because if it doesn't mean what it says, then the law can't convict us of our sins, and when Paul says the law killed him, it was a good thing. It killed the self-righteous Pharisee. Amen. Alright? Yep. But if the law doesn't mean... What, what's that? The can't yeah. So the law can't convict us because it could not mean anything. <clears throat> Thou shalt not steal unless you need it really bad. <laughs> 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 or you can't steal unless you want it really bad. Um, and then the gospel can mean anything too. Repent and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sins and it was raised on the third day that we... That his blood uh, avers God's wrath against our sin and that we can be forgiven. That could mean anything. Maybe it just means like they used to say in the liberal church. Well, Easter means every spring the grass gets green and the bunnies come out and it's the cycles of nature. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you ever heard of one of those sermons? Ah. Oh. Here, go to Brian there. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that like in Way of the Master,
1: they talk to people in prison and there's some prisoners that are have been convicted of, like, rape and, and bank theft and stuff like that. And then they'll look at the next guy and say, well, I'm not so bad because he murdered somebody. Yeah. So you're, they're always comparing themselves to the guy yeah. next to them, even, even the people uh, on death row. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: there's somebody always worse. <laughs> and then uh, my friend Vince, who's retired now, who, but has spent his whole career as a prison guard at North Park. North Par- What's that one? That- Stillwater. Yeah. They're really high security, so they got the most heinous criminals in there. And that's what Vince says. They don't think they're bad. They don't. And, there, and there's a pecking order of who's really bad. And, 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 they, and they basically agree that the child molester is the most heinous person in there. And they all hate the child. I mean, they may have murdered four people, but he's not as bad as that guy because he's a child molester. And then the guy who's the child molester said, well, I, I wasn't so bad, you misunderstand me. <laughs> and so nobody understands me. So there's this blinding, even when the obvious fact is that I'm a very evil person. Sin blinds us, and we don't think we're so bad. And that's Satan's work. And we're going to talk about that later. How the, how Paul said that's why he renounced the hidden things because of shame. And and he says if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who's lost, who are lost, in whose case. The God of this world has blinded their minds. Amen. Okay, And so, uh, the Paul said that the clarity of the message is absolutely essential. It's clear that the law is preached. Uh, I mean, it's important the law is preached clearly, and it's important that the gospel is preached, because in both cases, the clarity is very, very important so that we don't go out in a diluted haze or fog in our minds. Now, let's look up some cross I don't think we did cross-references two weeks ago. I'm pretty sure we didn't. Okay, uh, Denise, Romans one five, Dick, one Timothy one eleven and twelve, Joanne, Matthew twenty six. Um, no, excuse me, Luke twenty two twenty, and Larry, Matthew twenty six twenty eight, and uh, Lois, one Corinthians eleven twenty five, and Gail, Hebrews seven twenty two. We'll do those and then I have some more. Oh. Yeah, it's probably still gone. Yep. Um, why, uh, Zeke, why don't you look up uh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven? That's a really important one. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. I like the main page for this purpose. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Romans one five.
2: Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name.
0: Okay, so Paul's apostleship was to bring people amongst the Gentiles, to bring about the obedience of faith. So, when we have faith in God, as, as Keith was saying earlier, the Holy Spirit... Not, for one thing, you really don't fully acknowledge the law of God until you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's almost an instantaneous thing. For example, in Paul's case, when that's what some uh, interpreters stumble over in Romans 7, because if you read the story of Paul's conversion... In, in Acts nine, it's, it's instantaneous conversion. But as he describes it in Romans seven, there was this um, uh, lamenting over being a sinner, uh, which doesn't uh, square with what he said in Philippians three that he was a self-righteous Pharisee and a keeper of the law. But what he's describing is still real because it's the same thing for me. My conversion was like a three-minute—I mean, it was instantaneous. And it was just like instantaneous that I knew I was a heinous sinner. And and as soon as I knew that, I I knew hell was real and I was going there. (laughs) And I knew heaven was real and I could go there instantaneously. And I repented and believed the gospel. But that's a work of grace by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, in a similar experience, is able to look back. And I can look back and see myself convicted by the law. Okay, As you think about it, even though the process was almost instantaneous, that's exactly what Paul's doing. So having been converted, then there's a desire. Now there's another problem. We're still in the flesh, and there's a conflict, because now we have the desire to keep God's law, but the ability isn't always there, and that's a progressive thing. Okay, 1 Timothy 1, 11 and 12. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Okay, so God gave Paul the, what he needed. That, that's a comment on this, who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. See that phrase? Who also made us adequate. So Paul was made adequate, even though he was a, a sinner and a rebel before his conversion. Uh, Matthew 26, no, Luke 22:20.
2: And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, The cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood.
0: Yes, the new covenant. He was talking about the new covenant. I was thinking about that Friday night. And I didn't want to, uh, you know, we had such a wonderful service. and everybody. Any, were you there? Were you blessed? Yes. Oh, oh, oh that was so good. I, I was so blessed to see seven people. Put a clear gospel message out there, and then sing gospel songs and the the music, everything was wonderful. Anyhow, I thought about that when I was reading the words of, of institution, as they're called. Isn't transubstantiation really a, a, a goofy doctrine in a lot of ways? Because <clears throat> um, they say, well, when Jesus said, "This is my blood," then he obviously means that literally, so that the wine in the cup literally has to become the blood, or Uh, Jesus' words are meaningless. But, what was I reading? We try to use that same process. This cup is the new covenant. So, are you going to say literally, the cup is the, the yeah, is it, yeah, then we have to go on a quest for the Holy Grail. (laughs) And so, you, you would never, somebody saying, holding a cup saying this cup is the new covenant, nobody would ever think the cup literally is the new covenant. And obviously, it represents the new covenant. So, all right, well, let's not, so much for the Catholics, huh? Okay, transubstantiation. Wait a sec. okay.
1: <laughs> you just made a, a comment a little bit ago about your personal life where you were convicted of your breaking the law and then that brought you to salvation. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that have to be true for everybody that has true salvation? If you can't recognize that you broke the law, then there is no repentance. And that would be the difference between true salvation and a false conversion.
0: And, and, or a mental assent. I, I, you know, um, the thing that I'll, there's this doctrine that you talk about in systematic theology, theology called Ordo Salutis. And, and it's a Latin word, it means order of salvation. And there's a debate about logically what precedes what. <clears throat> so as re- I, I, I believe Reformed theology on the, on, the, on the salvation side. So I believe regeneration precedes faith. And that's the Arminians considered a blasphemy and false doctrine. Okay, But there's a logical, in time, it's instantaneous, but we just break these things out logically to talk about them. MacArthur talks about this. And so the fact is that God breathes new life into us. First, the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit breathes new life into the person. And at that moment, at the moment that God does that, that's when you know you're a vile lawbreaker. Okay, You didn't come to know you're... People may feel guilty without a work of the Holy Spirit, but we tend to justify and rationalize. But at that moment, you know you're a vile lawbreaker. And it's the converted that know that. It's the converted who feel guilty about their sin. And, and, feel like they need a, a savior. And then, as, at that moment, you realize you can't keep going the way you're going. Alright? At some moment, if you're a truly a Christian, now this is going to happen in your youth, and there are people that are converted in their youth, and, the, and, and because of that, they can't maybe just point out a day or an hour. I'm not saying that's necessary. You may be converted at a young age and eventually come to totally understand this. But if you are converted, you know that sin is real, and that God's law is true, and that you do deserve God's wrath against your sin. But you also know that the blood of Jesus has cleansed your sin, and the converted person wants to exit from sin. Right? You don't want to continue in sin. But like Paul says, "Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be." So that's why he talks about the obedience of faith. Yes. I, so.
1: <laughs> I was just saying, if if we're truly dead in our trespasses and sin, it's very much like Lazarus, because when Lazarus was in the tomb, he was just in the tomb, and he didn't have the ability to come forth or do anything. He was just sitting there dead. When Jesus said, "Lazarus, come f- forth," the life that He gave him enabled him to come forth, and he couldn't have come forth beforehand. And inasmuch as you know, if we assume dead people can come forth on their own. Then we could consume you know assume that they could be converted on their own.
0: And that's a very good analogy. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. That's a perfect analogy. All right. Let's just leave it on green here. All right. Go ahead and read your verse. (laughs) For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant poured out for many. I'm going to be preaching on that from Isaiah fifty three. Laws? I'm going to be preaching from Isaiah 53. We're going to talk about the many. If you were in hermeneutics class Thursday night, Ryan was talking about the one and the many, and Isaiah 53 is a perfect example. So it says it's poured out for the many, the many being those who will indeed be justified.
2: First Corinthians 12:25 or 11:25. After the same manner also he took the cup and when he had supped, saying, "This cup is the new covenant." New Testament in the King James. Uh, in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me.
0: Okay, the New Covenant or New Testament in my blood. The word, by the way, covenant and testament are synonymous. Alright? So there's nothing wrong with the King James on that one. Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. Okay, so there I will put My Spirit within you, and then you will walk in My my uh, statutes. So do you see the priority? That the Holy Spirit is put within them? Well, that was Ezekiel 36.27. Very, very important. After God puts His Spirit within, then you will walk in My ordinances. And that's a real important New Covenant truth. Yes. That's exactly it, and it, that's what it looks like. Yes. Okay. Uh, if you read MacArthur's book, uh, "The Gospel According to the Apostles," one of my favorite books of all time, uh, as far as I use that to give to new Christians, if they if they if they can read it, uh, and what I mean is it is kind of a college level thing, but most people can. And he talks about Ordo, ordo Salutis a little bit in that book, but he says. Though we debate this academically, ordo salutis, in reality, the whole thing is instantaneous. Amen. And so if you want to talk about convicted of sin, born again, having faith, receiving the Holy Spirit, all the things that happen, it's instantaneous. Amen. And so the ordo salutis is only a logical debate, not a, uh, and you don't even have to get into the debate if you don't want to. <laughs> okay. But some of us, we spend too much time in the seminary library and, okay, go ahead. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, in the in this section it's talking about the um covenant, the new covenant and the old covenant, introducing the new covenant, but um and making the comparisons the greater to the lesser and yes. and the old covenant written on the um stone and but also showing that throughout the Old Testament it wasn't just the old covenant, but there was more to come. And so it, this new covenant isn't something that's just out there. It's been, God's been pointing to it. Even throughout the old scripture, they would have known, like in Jeremiah, um, 31. Yes. Uh, let me see here. Um, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write in their hearts. On their hearts, and I will be their God, and they sh- shall be my Absolutely. people. Absolutely, there's a so promise of new covenant. It's a, new, it's, a fulfillment
0: it's a fulfillment of what they were
2: looking for. And so the whole thing, it doesn't make one less. It's the fulfillment continuity. of everything. Yeah,
0: what you're saying is that there's continuity between the old and new. and Absolutely. And the the new covenant is in, introduced when God gave the skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Amen. Because there the blood was shed already. So. Um, so the New Covenant idea is already already in Genesis. And you see it when Isaac is being brought up on to Mount Moriah, you see the New Covenant. Yes. Uh,
2: we had talked about this
0: before, and I have I just have a question about my own conversion. Is that at the end of the seminar that I you know in a sense proved to me that Jesus was Lord and I said the words, you know, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. But To me, the real conversion was when I I was tempted by the demons when they fought against me, and I knew that was the moment where I really knew that Jesus was Lord, and that's when I knew I was a sinner, and that's when I repented. So would you say the first time I said it was really a mental ascent, but the second time was really the turning point? Yeah, Brian, when we were doing the radio show on your book, we talked about this, and when when I read your book, I came to that conclusion... So I asked asked you on the radio, and you said, yeah, that's what you think, too. So the first time, yours was just three days. For me, it was like three months. But there's a point where you come to know Christianity is true. I mean, some people have always accepted it. They grew up in the church. Oh, yeah, I believe all those things. I believe Apostles' Creed. But some of us, I wasn't willing to just do that. and neither were you because you had people telling you that. But I believe you were converted like three days later because that's when you really knew. So that, that led us to the discussion then. Then there's churches, and we, of course, pick on Rick Warren. But you just say, well, just say the words, and that's it. Well, I said the words, but that wasn't it. No. Yeah, in Brian's story, if you haven't read his book, I highly recommend it. But in his story, he said the words at a Don Byerly apologetic seminar. And then his spirit guys were still talking. He had spirit guys, and they were saying, no, you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. And so he went out and sinned worse than he normally would. And and uh, <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> anyhow, he uh, um, and then and then he he just could He just realized how wretched he was and cried out to God and repented. And then then he was just delivered. Yes,
1: I would say that a lot of people who believe in a second blessing, it comes down to that kind of a thing where they they've heard the words, they have a mental assent, but at some point in time they start believing them and assign it to a second
0: blessing where I would assign it just to conversion. I totally agree with you, Keith. In fact, I, I'm convinced that that was what was going on with the charismatic renewal. And I'm not saying the whole charismatic renewal was bad. I'm not saying that at all. Because I saw a lot of people converted. But I really think that they were, we were interpreting things differently. In other words, people were going to Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopals and asking, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because if you ask them, had they accepted Jesus, which was, you know, again, it's, it's uh, terminology that the Bible doesn't use, but we, we've we used it over the years. So you'd go, and I know, because I used to do it when I was witnessing. I'd ask the Lutheran, have you accepted Jesus? I never rejected him. <laughs> 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 okay, <laughs> and then what, now what do you say? <laughs> well, that, because that's what I should have been preaching the law and the gospel, but I didn't understand that until the 80s. Well, then, it's sort of like when Paul went into Ephesus and he found these disciples and he says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Because they were like converted through evidently John the Baptist understanding. And then they received the Holy Spirit. I don't think that was a second blessing. I think that was a conversion. Because I don't know how you could be converted without the Holy Spirit.
1: Well, it just says even the passage that was just read, until this Holy Spirit comes inside you, you don't want to obey the commandments, you don't want to. That, that power isn't there. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that a lot of what got assigned to the second blessing is just
0: misapplied conversions. That was my point. And I think that what was going on with all of these people in the 70s that got converted through, um, especially the charismatic renewal, were people becoming converted, not receiving a second blessing like they thought they were. Because they didn't want to admit that they weren't saved just being Luther with their baptism. Through the through the uh, through what was called the renewal at that point, and and uh, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, there were no barriers against that because you never never heard of it. But I believe it was a conversion, not a second blessing. And so I uh, that's the position I have on that. And I think that there's biblical precedent. You can go to a Lutheran and say, "Do you believe?" Yes, I believe the Apostles' Creed. And you can say, "Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe?" Well, we never even heard if there was a Holy Spirit. Maybe. I don't know if they'd say that, but I'm I'm quoting Paul in Acts there. There, there, If Paul could do that, there's nothing wrong with us following that, but it's not the main pattern. Generally, you proclaim the law and the gospel. Okay? But there are some people would be like the rich young ruler. I've I've kept all these things from my youth up. Well, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Okay, that was Acts. Any questions about that? Have you read that passage in Acts before? Tom. I guess it for me it was more of a case of uh,
2: you know I, I had bits and pieces all all coming up I was brought up in, in a Catholic as a Catholic I I went to parochial school I had the the Bible teaching in that uh, I, like you I went through the charismatic renewal you know and in in but it was in the Catholic Church and it was like all the pieces started to come together for me you know mm-hmm. and, and it was. Instantaneous, but yet I have the background.
0: Yeah. So you have the categories, and the, see, like if you went into a tribal area that was just pagan, you'd have to start by building categories to describe. They don't know the same categories, okay? But if somebody that grew up in a Catholic church or any any Christian denomination has the categories at least verbally. I mean, every. I mean, even a very liturgical church will say the Apostles' Creed, right? Well, if you've been doing the Apostles' Creed, then you know such things about resurrection, death on the cross, and so on. So you got categories in your mind. So it's easier to preach, but it's still sometimes it's harder because of false assurance. I mean, the big thing is false assurance. Is that, okay, uh, yeah, I went forward when I was 12 and I said what they told me I was supposed to, so now I'm a Christian. That's what I thought till I was 16. And then I decided I wasn't a Christian and I decided I didn't want to be one. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. Yeah, don't get into that. oh. Okay, <laughs> hearts of stone. Hearts of stone. Remember those passages in the Old Testament? He says, Where well, I'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Amen. So, what, what we have here is letters etched on stone being read to people with hearts of stone. Uh, Ryan, we're, we're interpreting 2 Corinthians 3 6, the letter killeth. And we're saying that it isn't the literal meaning of the Bible that kills people. It's their sin. <laughs> you would have go along with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Good hermeneutics. Let's look at verse 7. But if the ministry of death in, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, verse 8, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be with even more glory? So he's re- he's using the actual event of the giving of the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus as an analogy. And what happened when Moses went up on the mount and came back down? His face was shining with glory, right? And so that showed that the giving of the law was good and it was glorious. It had glory. It wasn't that it wasn't from God. It really was, right? And they had to put a veil over his face. And so there was the idea of a holy, awesome God on Mount Sinai, and the people cowering down below, not, not even able to touch the mountain unless they die, and then going into idolatry. And Moses come and receiving this glorious law. Uh, who's a, Dave, could you look up Exodus 34:29 to 35 and read that? That 29 to 35. Uh, one of my uh, scholarly resources, a guy named Barnett. He claims that this whole section is what he calls Christian midrash, Christian midrash, and it would be uh, midrash uh, would be it would be taking an, a, an event and bringing spiritual significance out of it and applying it to the present situation. So I think that's probably a pretty good characterization. So the readers would know about this event, this thing that literally happened in Exodus, and then he's doing some midrashic type uh, interpretation of it. Yes. Okay, I want you to read Exodus 34:29 to 35.
1: If any of the flesh of ordination or yes, if any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning, then you what? shall burn. 34. Oh, 34.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, that, those are good passages, but I, not what we wanted. <laughs> it's all good. 34:29. So oh, it should be about Moses. Okay. <laughs> right.
1: It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him.
0: Okay, so there's the glory on Moses' faith. Okay, Jim is here, and because 40 of you men are going to go up and sing, I have to quit five minutes early.